Good morning. Uh, welcome to our uh, online worship resources. We're so glad uh, that you can join us in this way. And so we're thankful that we have this opportunity to meet like this, that we can spend time in God's word together, even if uh, you're unable to be here physically with us when we meet outside on Sunday morning. And so for those that are part of CODA, uh, that have been part of this church for a long time, uh, that can't be here right now, we just say we, we miss you and we miss getting to see you. For those that are joining us and uh, finding us to get to watch online, we're so thrilled that you're taking time out to spend time in God's word with us. And so this morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 4 as we continue in the series that we've been in uh, for several months now. Uh, is we're going to pick up in Romans 4. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in and look at that passage together. God, we thank you for this opportunity. Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways that you meet us in it, that you teach us, that you show us, that you uh, illuminate our hearts and our minds to see more fully who you are and what you've done for us. We pray this morning, and as we spend time in just looking at uh, the way that you save us and what it means for us and uh, what saving faith looks like, that you would just impress upon us uh, a great and total trust in you uh, for our salvation and for our identity and for who we are. We thank you that you've done for us what we could never do for ourselves. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I like to uh, look at different polls and stats uh, from time to time. Uh, it's just a, a habit I kind of get into. There's a lot of research, a lot of polling that goes into just what people believe and why. And I've always had the conviction that as a pastor in the church, as a, an elder, the qualifications the Bible tells us is being able to teach uh, sound doctrine, but also to be able to, to guard against things that are untrue. And, and so when you read through these different polls and these different things, as I often like to look at, it helps uh, just for me to understand where confusion is and where people uh, maybe are, are struggling with things that scripture teaches or what the Bible says or the way God's revealed himself. And so I came across this um, uh, called the Roper Center from Cornell University this week. And what they've done is they've just compiled a whole bunch of polls and a whole bunch of different things uh, about what people believe. And so what Americans believe, the things that we hold to, uh, the things that we're unsure about. Uh, as people of faith. And so as I was reading through, there was a couple questions that really struck me in light of, of what uh, we've been talking about in Romans. And, and some of those questions uh, go to what we would say is, is closed-handed issues. Maybe you've heard us talk about this at, at Church of the Apostles here at COTA. Uh, a closed-handed issue is something we would say that is very clearly stated in Scripture that goes right to the heart of what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus, to trust in him as your savior. And so closed-handed issues uh, would be things like uh, Jesus' sinless life, uh, his atoning death, his physical bodily resurrection, the things that hold very much to the center of everything that we believe. And without those, we now are going against what historic Christianity has taught, what Jesus himself said. We're now going against the very heart of everything we believe. And so that's what we would call a closed-handed issue. Uh, just for, for reference, we say open-handed issues for things that are not matters of salvation, uh, that maybe uh, Christians who are following Jesus that love him may disagree on. And so maybe uh, your theology of end times, or, or maybe, uh, for example, just very practical, the way we take communion. Uh, different churches take it different ways. Here we take by intention when we take the bread and dip it in the juice and then take it. Some do that where they take the bread and the juice separately and and there's good reasons on both sides of those. And so those are what we call open-handed issues. 
But when it comes to closed-handed issues, I'm really concerned about what I see and what people believe and and why they believe it. So there were a couple questions in this poll, uh, in this data that I was looking at this week. And one of them was from a study that Harvard did several years ago. And, And the question was simply this. Can a good person not of your faith attain salvation or go to heaven? And so that is, it's, it's not exclusive to what you believe. And if we were to put that in Christian terms, what we believe about Jesus and who he is, is there other ways to attain salvation? And in this poll, 84% said yes, uh, 9% said no, and 6 said they were not sure. But then there was a second poll that was very similar, similar question. It said, do you think only people who are Christians can go to heaven or that both Christians and non-Christians can go to heaven? And that was the question that was asked. And so... Uh, and now both of these polls were not exclusively asked to Christians or to followers of Jesus that would claim to be Christians, uh, but to those that are religious, that would believe in heaven, believe in life after death. And so of those asked in the second one, do you have to be a Christian or can non-Christians go to heaven? 70% said yes. 24% said no, and 7 said they were not sure. And so in both of these polls, an overwhelming majority of people do not believe in what we would call a closed-handed issue about the gospel. And and so if I put that in biblical language, uh, the majority of those that are professing to be a believer in God, maybe not necessarily Christian, but a believer in God in the United States, uh, believes that God will welcome in all people of all faiths, it doesn't matter, as long as uh, they're a pretty good person. And so what you see is this idea of salvation by our works. And it's prevalent in our society. And it's even prevalent for many who claim to be Christians within the church. And the reason I start here and the reason I bring this up is is this was very disconcerting to me for a couple reasons. But the biggest probably is is it goes exactly the opposite of what the Bible says, of what Scripture says, of the way God's revealed himself. Here we've been spending time in the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And he has labored over these first three chapters to say the exact opposite of that, that we're not saved by our works, that it is by faith in what Jesus has done. It's not by our works. And he says no one will be saved by our works. And so he's, he's pushing on this and pressing on this over and over from really halfway through the first chapter through chapter three that we just finished up in last week. And so today Paul's going to take this link and he's going to show us how this has always been the case that we're saved by faith and not works. And I think it's often a misunderstanding that pops up, especially when we get to Old Testament. Well, what about before Jesus came? If we're saying we're saved by Jesus' work, then how were people saved before Jesus came? And so Paul's going to show us, and he's going to go back, and he's going to point to Abraham, and he's going to point to David, some of the great fathers of the faith that the people of the day, and still today, that we look at and we see and we're revered in Scripture as following God and what he has told them. And so we're going to look at David and Abraham, and he's going to point to us and show us that even David, even Abraham, all the way through the Old Testament, God has always been operating with people that they're saved by faith. And so here's the questions I want us to consider this morning together. First and foremost, the first question is I want us to consider Old Testament salvation. Old Testament being before Jesus, uh, God's revelation, how was God relating to people and how were people saved before Jesus comes? And so that's the first question. Uh, I've been saying the last couple weeks, when we have questions like that, if you're seeking to be a disciple and follow Jesus, it's good that we can answer those questions because that's a good question to ask. You may have that conversation with someone when they say, well, wait a second, if it's only Jesus, how did that work before Jesus came? And so I would just ask you this morning to consider, 
How would you answer that question? Because we're going to kind of walk through that this morning. So first, Old Testament salvation. Secondly, what is saving faith? If we're going to say it's by faith, what does it mean to actually be saving faith? And then lastly, what difference does that make? And so that's where we're going this morning. Romans chapter 4, if you want to follow along with me, uh, you can turn there in your Bible because that's where we're going to be spending our time. But before we jump into 4, let's go back to chapter 3 for just a second and recap just where we were last week. And so where we ended up last week in Romans chapter 3, if we were to read chapter 3, verse 27 and 28, it says, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded By what kind of law? By a law of works. No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And so what Paul says is he's just come to this uh, conclusion that no one is righteous, that no one can save themselves by their works. And so we are saved by faith through grace. It's a gift in what Jesus has done. And so there's no place for any of us to boast in our salvation. It's not our good works. It's not what we've done. It's what Jesus has done for us. And he's saying that so clearly. But then look at what he says at the very end of chapter 3 and verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And and what Paul's saying in essence there is that do we go against the Old Testament law? Do we go against all the things that God revealed to us about who he is and how we're to live and the way that we are to approach him? Do we just throw all that out because it doesn't matter if we do that or not? And so Paul's kind of rhetorically asking that question. He says, no, no, no. On contrary, by the, on con- the contrary, we are uphold the law. We're doing exactly what scripture tells us when we say it's by faith. And what he's pointing at is all of scripture has always been pointing us to Jesus. And it's always been saying that it's going to be God who, who uh, comes and does for us what we can't do for ourselves. It's always been by grace through faith that we're saved. And then in chapter 4, he's going to kind of turn back and he's going to go, Can I, let me show you this. And he's going to go to Abraham. And so that's why maybe the shift here, how all of a sudden he starts to talk about Abraham and why. He's going to show you that this has always been the case. And so look at chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3 there. What shall we say? What then shall we say? was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so he's going to go back, and he's telling you about Abraham. And he says he's an example of how it's always been about God's grace to us. There's not a different program in the Old Testament. Nothing's changed. And so, he, he, remember, we've added uh, chapters and verses, but this is all the same argument here where he goes back and he says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? And he says, no, by no means. This was always the point. And now he's showing you that and how he gets to that. And so grace through faith and God's provision has always been the way God has dealt with his people, even going back to the Old Testament. And that upholds the law. So I want you to follow his reasoning and what he's saying. The whole Old Testament was pointing forward to Jesus. And even Abraham, who's the father of the Jews, the the great patriarch, the man that God comes and calls and tells him to go out of his land and I'm going to do this great work through you, was saved by grace. Was saved by putting his faith in what God would do, not saved by his works. And so, so often... What happens is we kind of overlay our sinful thinking that we can save ourselves, that it's based on what we do. 
And we can look at Abraham's life and go, oh, I was saved because he was obedient and he did the things God told him to do. And that's what it looked like. Or, or we take the Old Testament law and we see the Ten Commandments and we go, well, God gave us those Ten Commandments so that we could keep them to the best of our ability. And if we do it pretty well, then we'll be saved. All of Romans to this point, Paul's been saying, no, 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 that's not it. In fact, that's the opposite of what God was doing with the law. And so, uh, again, as we think about discipleship and answering those questions, what was the point of the law in the Old Testament leading up to Jesus? How would you answer that question? Because it's very important for us to see this and see it rightly to understand what God was always doing. And so when we look at the, the law in the Old Testament, we could say, well, the, the law shows us what God is like. It, it reveals his holiness. It reveals the way he's created things and the way they work. And so it shows us his glory and what he's like. But we also could say that the law shows us uh, how to live. It constrains evil. Um, sometimes we say the law was guardrails. Uh, in, in the sense of, you know, a guardrail on a highway keeps you from careening off if you were to have a wreck or, or get off to the side. And it keeps you from, from things getting way worse. And so God gives us the law to show us as sinful people how to respond to him. And so there are guardrails that are there to keep us from going off, uh, being constraining our evil, that we're not as bad as we could be. But then thirdly, it, it alerts us to our need. It shows us as we, as we listen to God's law and as we hear it, as we interact with it, we see that we can't keep it, that we've not done it, that no one measures up, which is exactly what Paul says in chapter 3. He brings us through this whole thing that none of us has done of it. No one is righteous. No, not one. And he gets to verse 19 in chapter 3. And he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And so what he's saying is God has given us the law to show us that we can't do it. Now, that would be pretty cruel if that was all it is, is, is to show us what he's like and to show us that we can't do it and we're far from him. But the last part of what God was doing with the law is to point us ahead to, Jesus, to, to God's provision, which is ultimately Jesus, that he was going to do for us. He's always been working towards doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. God is showing us that we can't keep the law, but there was one that is coming that can and has and will do it for us. And it's by grace through faith that we're saved in Jesus. And so that's always been the point of the law. And so when we start to think about, well, what does Abraham have to do with this? And what is Paul's reasoning? And I give you that with the law just as background to kind of think about what, what Paul's aiming at here. But as we go back and we look at Abraham and we think about his life, let's just think about what he says here. Pick up in verse 2 of chapter 4. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so it says, and, he, and he's pointing us to what Abraham and the way he responded to God. Now, Paul says in verse Three there that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul's actually quoting from the Old Testament there. If you look at the footnotes in your Bible where you're following along, or, or maybe you just know this from, from your study of the Bible, he's quoting from Genesis chapter 15. And so we need to have a little bit of understanding about what was going on with Abraham and who he was and the way he related to God to understand this. But if we go back and we look at Genesis 
as Abraham's introduced in chapter 12 of Genesis, God says to Abraham, I want you to move. I want you to go to this place. I'm going to show you. I'm going to give you a great land. I'm going to give you a great number of descendants. They're going to grow up into a great nation. And ultimately, I'm going to bless the world through your seed. That's what we call the Abrahamic covenant. God makes this promise to Abraham. And so Abraham's obedient. He begins to do the things God tells him to do. And he picks up and he moves and he goes to this new land. In Genesis 15, several years have passed. And Abraham still has no children. Although he's done the first part, he's he's sought to relocate and go to where God has told him. He's following God in that. But he's starting to doubt a little bit that he's actually going to have a child through his own body, his own physical child that will be his. Abraham at this time is a very old man into his 80s. His wife is an old woman who is barren. They've never had any children. And Abraham even asked God, he says, are you sure that you're going to do this through me? Uh, Is it maybe going to be through my servant, Eliezer, who's kind of like Abraham's right-hand man? And he's trying to clarify, I don't see how this is going to work. And God says, no, 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 it's coming through you, Abraham. And he takes them outside and they go outside and it's, it's in the night and he looks up at the stars and he says, I want you to look at the stars and count them if you can. So will your descendants be. And this is Genesis chapter 15. And then right after that, Genesis 15, 6, which Paul quotes here, says Abraham believed God and he counted it to him as righteousness. And so I want you to understand what happens in that story and what Paul's referring to. Abraham's come to a place where he is trusting God and he's trusting God's provision. As he's looking and surveying the situation, he recognizes that he will never be able to do what God's promising that he will never be able to produce a great number of offspring. Here is this old man that has passed uh, having children and his wife is barren and he's looking at this and going, this doesn't make any sense. And God says, no, 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 it's coming through your body. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this provision. It's going to be as numerous as the stars. And so what happens is Abraham has to take his trust. Instead of trusting in himself and what he would do in his works, he's going to trust in God's provision. And it says when he does, God counts it to him as righteousness. He counted it to him. And the word that's used here and what Paul is talking about literally means to credit to him, to give him something that he hasn't earned. And and, and you get that even if you don't know what the word means, you you can discern that just from the context. Because verse four says, now the one who works, his wages are are not counted or credited as a gift, but they are his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness. And so what Paul's saying is that Abraham didn't earn anything. That when he came to God crediting this righteousness in him, it's because Abraham stopped putting his trust in himself and what he could do and trusted in the provision of what God was going to do. And so he put his faith in God and what he alone could do. And so what Paul's pointing us to is is even Abraham, this great father of the faith, was saved by grace through faith. He's trusting, he's putting his trust not in himself, but in God. He's trusting in God's provision. And it's always been this way. Right after that, he'll turn and he'll say in verse six, just as David also speaks of the blessing to to the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. He says, even David understood that the only way that he was made righteous before God, right standing with God, is because God counts it or credits it to him. Look at verse 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is David writing in Psalm 34, and Paul's quoting it. And he says, David clearly understood that the only way that he would be saved, 
The only way that he would be counted righteous is if it was credited to him by grace through faith. And so what Paul's showing us is this is the way God has always operated. It's always been by grace through faith. It's never been about works. The only way that anyone is saved is by what God does for us and putting our trust not in ourselves but in him. If you look right after that, verses 9 to 12, he's going to talk about circumcision. And again, he's just kind of driving home this point. And so look at what he says there. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Is this blessing just for the Jews, those that were circumcised, is the covenant seal of, of being God's people? Or is it for the uncircumcised, the Gentiles as well? Now remember, through Romans, Paul's been saying that it's Jew and Gentile alike. We're both sinners. We both need God's grace. We're both saved the same way. There's no boasting between the two. And so he's already made this point, but now he's going back to the Old Testament again to prove it, to make sure that you see clearly that this is always the way God was working. Because look at verse 10. He says, how then was it counted to him? Talking about Abraham, it's counted to him as righteousness. He says, was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And so what Paul is saying is that if you go back and you look, Genesis 15, 6, God counts it to Abraham as righteousness. By grace through faith he's saved. This is Old Testament salvation. And he says, and this was before he was circumcised. And so why does Paul bring that up? Why does he even say that? And so it's pretty simple. Circumcision was an act of obedience that defined Jews as Jews. It was a mark, an, an outward sign of their special covenant with God. And those that were struggling with believing that they're saved by what they do, their Jewishness, their keeping the law, their works, all of these sorts of things, Paul's going to go, do you see that Abraham, the father of the faith, the, the, the first of Israel, the one that God chose to do this, even he was saved apart from his works. His circumcision didn't save him. In fact, God counted it to him as righteousness before he was circumcised. And so Paul is showing us so clearly that God has always worked in this way. And so it's, the, it's, it's very similar, uh, and, and we can make the correlation here with baptism. It's like when you're baptized, we stand up and we confess that we're a sinner, that we're saved, and we're acting in obedience to what God has done in our life, but our baptism doesn't save us. It's, it's the next step in obedience. It's the sign and seal, and, and, and that's what he says here about circumcision. It's the sign and seal that shows that he's uh, now operating in faith, and so it's, God has saved him, and he's done this work, and then he's stepping in obedience. And so we want to make sure that we see clearly that it's not this act of obedience that saves. And that's what Paul's saying. It's by grace, through faith, and what God has done. And so simply put, Old Testament salvation. Somebody asked you the question, well, how were people saved before Jesus? And the answer is by putting, uh, by grace, through faith, they're putting their faith in what God is going to do, the provision. They're trusting in God's provision and the way he's going to work. And so it's always been trusting in God, putting your faith in him and what he alone can do, not what you do. And so that leads me to the second part. So what is saving faith? If we say Old Testament salvation was by grace through faith, well, what does that saving faith look like? And Paul really helps us to understand that in this passage. 
And I say this is the very heart of the gospel. We talk about this a lot. We come back to it. But when I read these statistics of the way people see salvation, the way our world sees it, the way the average person says uh, this is how you attain, and 85% says it doesn't really matter what you believe. Just be a good person. I want us to really see what he's saying here because it's going to show us that saving faith is not that. And so verse 5 says this, And to the one who does not work but believes in him, and that believes in him really most literally could be trusts in him. So the one that does not work but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So what is Paul saying there? And he's contrasting the work with believing in contrasting work, working for our salvation with believing in him or trusting in him who justifies. And so faith cannot be an act of accomplishment of something that we have done. It's it's uh, received putting our faith not in ourselves, but in what God has done. And you may go, yeah, yeah, yeah. you say this all the time. That's really obvious. I, I hope it is. But I want you to really think about this for just a second. Our faith is not a work that merits anything. And I think oftentimes we can mix that up and start to think that way. It is the act of trusting in God's provision, not trusting in myself or anything I can do, but trusting only in what God has done and who he is. Faith is not uh, uh, obedience to the law, right? And let me just be careful in the way we say that. It's the difference between trusting in what God has done and versus what you can do. So often we, we start to blur that lines. And so when he says here, saving faith doesn't work. Think about what he says there. And to the one who does not work, but trusts in him. Well, that doesn't mean that when you become a believer, that your life has not changed and you start to seek to do good and to follow God. Because you do. And the Bible says that. And it says that true saving faith that has placed your trust in Jesus and not in yourself will change you. And you will start to see uh, evidence of obedience in your life. Paul's going to come back to this later. When he says, should we continue in sin that uh, uh, grace abounds? And he says, by no means, how can you who died to sin now live in it? You're a new creation and God is remaking you. But let's not confuse how that happens. It's not that work that makes you a new creation. It's transferring your trust from yourself to God and what he's going to do. And so when he says it doesn't work, right, in verse 5, and to the one who does not work but trusts in him, what he's saying is he no longer trusts in our own obedience as a way to be saved. Do you see that? Do you understand that? It's not that I'm a pretty good person that I'm saved. He's spent so much time saying that cannot be. Now it's trusting in God who justifies the wicked. Now remember, who are the wicked? All of us. No one is righteous. No, not one. And he's, he's gone to great lengths to show us that. Every single one of us falls short. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He just said in chapter 3. And so we must trust that God has a, a way to save us apart from our efforts. So the one who does not work is, is what we're saying is we're transferring our trust from ourself and our ability to do it to putting our trust in Jesus as the only one that can do it. And he says that's what Abraham and David did. And he's showing you those examples to show you that. Abraham trusted in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. David cries out and says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the will, the Lord will not count his sin. And so they're both professing that it's 
trusting in God's provision and not in themselves. And so I want you to understand that we see that so clearly and why this is important. Go back to the beginning where we started with those studies and those uh, those different polls that would say that it, it basically it's um, a good person that gets into heaven, 85%. If you take those two polls and you average them together, close to 80% say that it's good people that get into heaven. And what the Bible emphatically says and what Paul's saying is, no, 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 that is not it. And it is only when you come to the place and you lay down your belief, your trust in yourself to be a good person and to be able to earn it, and you transfer that trust only to God and what he's done for you in Jesus, that is what saving faith is. In fact, it's the exact opposite of what so many hold to. And so I want you to, to see and understand that we put our faith not in our works or our abilities, but fully in the one who justifies. And it makes us righteous by what he does. It's counted to us as righteousness. And this is so very key. And I hope you see why it's so very vital when we read those statistics and we look at the way people operate and the way they see it. And so let's end here this morning. Why is this so important? Well, I hope it's obvious in this regard. It's so important because what the scripture tells us about how we're made righteous, how we can be uh, in communion with God, how we can be good with God. And the only way is, is, is transferring our trust from ourselves to Jesus and what he's done. It's the only way. None of us can measure up. And we've been saying that over and over in Romans. And so salvation is at stake here. Whether or not we put our trust in ourselves or in Jesus, we can't trust in ourselves because we will never, ever be able to, to do it. And it's so important because it's so easy for us to be deceived. Uh, our sinfulness always wants to make it about what we do rather than what God has done. Our pride wants to make it about, I can do this. I'm a pretty good person. But what the Bible is teaching us and showing us is that's not true. That we desperately need to God, need God to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. And so I want you just to think about how, how subtle this can be. And hopefully this is helpful to illustrate it. How subtle it can be that we're placing our trust in ourselves and we haven't transferred that trust. That saving faith that makes it all about what God has done. And so I'm just going to give you three, three answers to the question of why are you saved? Or why would God welcome you into his presence? Why would you be led into heaven? Maybe is the question kind of gets asked from time to time. And so three different answers, and I want you to think about each one. The first question of that asks, why, why are you saved? Or why would God allow you in? Because I've tried my best to be a good Christian. Second answer, why, why would God allow you in? Because I believe in him and I try to do his will. Or maybe the third example, because I believe in him with all my heart. But I want you to stop and think about in all three of those answers, answers that I've heard often, heard people say, the way they articulate it. I'm just trying my best to be a good Christian. I believe in him and I try to do his will. Or because I believe in him with all my heart. In all three of those answers, the trust is still in yourself. It's still working for your salvation. It's still working based on what you do. I try to keep his commandments. I try to be a good Christian. I, I try to believe with all my heart. And it's all about me in that regard. And in all three of those answers, you haven't stopped working. You haven't transferred your trust completely to God and what he's done for you in Jesus. There's been no real trust transfer. You're trusting in your own ability. Even in the third one, because I believe in him with all my heart. 
You're still trusting in your ability to trust. You haven't transferred your trust to the only one that can do it for you. And if this is the case, and this is why this is so very important, you've not completely transferred your trust to Jesus, and the results of that will be uh, an insecurity. There'll be an anxiety. Have I done enough? I, you know, If you're operating with, I've tried my best to be a good Christian, what's always going to be the case is, have I done enough? And the answer is you haven't because you never can. But we'll still struggle with that. And there will always be this anxiety and this struggle, this lack of assurance. There'll be times when there's spiritual pride because when you're doing pretty well, you'll look down on the other people that you're comparing yourself to. Go, oh, I'm better than them, so I'll probably get in. But in all of that, you're trusting in your own ability to work rather than what Paul says here in verse 5. The one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Transferring your trust completely and totally to Jesus is the only way that there's true saving faith. Because when that trust transfer happens, then and only then can you truly rest in what God has done for you. It's Jesus' perfect record. It's Jesus' atoning death in which he takes all of your sin and, and bears the wrath of God and does away with all of it. He pays for every bit of it. And it's through his glorious resurrection that you can lead a new life as he comes and lives in you by grace, through faith. He's the one that does that work. But your trust is completely and totally in Jesus. And when that happens, there's a great humility. We've been talking about this for several weeks. The humility of understanding you can't do it, but that God had to do it for you. But then there's also a great freedom in that and an assurance and peace because it's all what he's done and you can rest in that. And so saving faith is a transfer to trust, of complete trust into Jesus and what he's done. And so as we continue through Romans, Paul's going to continue to remind us this, the glory of the gospel, the good news that God has done for us, what we can never do for ourselves. And so I would just urge you today, if you're struggling with that idea of, of working for your salvation, you're still trusting in yourself, would you lay that down and give that over to Jesus, the only one that can do that for you? Let me pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. Would you continue to remind us that it's not a trust in our work or what we do, but completely and totally what you've done for us in Jesus. Give us the freedom and the joy that comes from resting in our salvation in you. I pray that you would show us that uh, afresh every single day. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.